Have you found yourself, maybe in the past week, rushing to your local supermarket to pick up supplies? Did you buy an extra three or four packs of rice? And did you update your Instagram story with a picture of empty shelves? Well, you're obviously not alone if you did. Most of us have been affected by the recent panic buying caused by the coronavirus pandemic. But why does this happen? What causes many of us to go out and buy essentials in huge supply, even when we're told not to? You're listening to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. Today we're covering the psychology behind panic buying, and we'll start by looking at a study conducted way back in 1935, which might explain some of the behaviour we're seeing today. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. In a Harvard classroom in 1935, Musafa Sheriff gathered a group of students in a dark room. The students were all looking at a tiny red dot about 15 feet away at the far end of the room. To the students, it looked as if the red dot was moving across the wall, and after the experiment, they were asked, in private, how much the dot moved. Each student gave wildly different estimates. Some said it moved a few inches, while others said a couple of metres. Interestingly, they are all wrong. In a dark room, a tiny dot of light will appear to move due to the autokinetic effect, but it wasn't actually moving at all. However, Sheriff's discovery came when he brought the students back in groups of three. And this time he asked the group to estimate how much the dot had moved. Even though the subjects had all previously given different estimates, the groups of three would all come to a common agreed-on estimate, replacing their own personal view. To rule out of the possibility that the subjects were simply giving the group answer to avoid looking foolish while still believing their own estimate, Sheriff had the subjects judge the lights again by themselves after doing so with the group. They maintained the group's judgments. The participants were relying on each other to define reality. 
What Sheriff had found is that many of us blindly follow the actions of others, and we change our views based on the group we're with. However, it might be easy to dismiss this study, assuming it doesn't reflect reality. After all, it's just students talking about a red dot. But a similar experiment revealed that it has significant effects. This experiment focused on eyewitness testaments. Here, subjects were shown a high-quality picture of a perpetrator. The subjects were told this individual had committed a horrifying crime, but to convict, they needed the subject to pick the perpetrator out from a lineup of four. The researchers then showed the subject a lineup of four individuals, where one was quite clearly the perpetrator they'd seen before. Now on their own, the subjects chose the correct perpetrator almost 100% of the time when looking at the lineup of four. However, when they were put in a group setting, behaviour suddenly changed. When three actors, posing as fellow participants, gave an incorrect answer first, all saying it was a different individual, suddenly the subject was greatly swayed. In this scenario, 51% of the subjects conformed to the group view and chose the wrong perpetrator, even though they thought otherwise. This phenomenon is called social proof. It's the reason why we follow the actions of others, and it explains some of the recent events. It's why in Auckland, New Zealand, supermarket spending shot up by 40% last week compared to the same day a year ago. And for shoppers in Malaysia, why some consumers were willing to spend 800% more to buy hand sanitizer. But most of us don't actually see hundreds of people flocking to our local supermarket. Instead, social proof kicks in because of how the media reports the problem. Images of Aussies storming the aisle and fighting over toilet roll kicks our brain into action, urging us to get out and do the same. To understand the amount of attention this gets, I turned to content marketing platform Buzzsumo to measure the volume of articles about panic buying over time. The average number of articles on panic buying per month was around 40 articles published in 2019, with each of those articles collecting around a 1,000 shares and a million impressions per month. However, in just the first week of March, over 5,826 articles have been written, receiving 4.3 million shares and reaching billions of us across the web. This makes panic buying much more likely in the modern age. Although we're not always seeing shoppers raiding shelves in person, we're watching it online, thus perpetuating the problem. We've seen this story play out before in the past. Back in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when nuclear war seemed imminent, American families filled their basement with enough canned food and bottled water to survive an atomic blast. Then there was the Y2K at the turn of the millennium. Here, fears were about a computer glitch as the year switched. People didn't just hoard lots of non-perishable goods and bottled water, but money too. In 1999, the US Treasury was ordered to print out an extra $50 billion in cash to suffice the desire to stockpile. Copycat suicides are another haunting side effect of social proof and media hype. One study cited in Robert Cialadini's Influence found that suicide rates increase following extensive media coverage. Several high-profile suicides reveal this. Korean actress Cho Jing-si caused suicide rates to rise by 162% following her own suicide. And Marilyn Monroe's death 
was followed by an increase of 200 suicides on average per month. Even fictional suicides play a role. The online series 13 Reasons Why, which chronicled a teen suicide, was associated with an increase in suicide-related internet searches, including a 26% increase in the search for how to commit suicide, an 18% increase for committing suicide, and a 9% increase for the term how to kill yourself. Social proof drives behaviour, but it's not the only reason. The scarcity heuristic, which suggests we place a higher value on an object that is scarce, has a role to play too. Earlier in March, a search on eBay or Etsy for hand sanitizer would have delivered some head-scratching results. Previously, cheap commodities like face masks were now being sold for more than $100 a pack. While in the States, sales of hand sanitizer increased 313% between February 22nd and February 29th. The practice of dramatically increasing prices to exploit a fearful market is called price gorging. It's definitely not new. In 2017, during Hurricane Harvey, some shops were selling water for $99 per case, while gas prices saw a 10x ramp in price. That's why many countries have laws in place to curb gorging in times of crisis. It also explains why British pharmacy chains Boots and Lloyd's Pharmacy both announced they would restrict sales of hand sanitizer to just two bottles per customer, and why Tesco, the UK's largest supermarket, has capped sales of essential items like tinned vegetables, pasta and soap. But will these caps work? Well, behaviour science suggests they might not. In an now famous study, researchers looked to see how limiting the sales of soup affected behaviour in the US. In a grocery store in Iowa, the research team placed a 10% off promotion for Campbell's soup. This resulted in three cans of soup being bought per customer. But on alternative days, they added an extra line to the offer, which read, limit of 12 cans per person. On these days... Customers bought seven cans on average, dramatically altering their behaviour just due to the scarcity effect. The product hadn't changed, the price remained the same, yet behaviour shifted when the sales were capped. Countless examples exist of individuals responding to scarce resources with stockpile buying. One of my favourite reactions is the panic caused when Hotess Brands, the maker of Twinkies, filed for bankruptcy in 2012. Shoppers began stockpiling Twinkies, fearing they'd find no alternative, and news outlets reported that at least one person tried to capitalise on the scare by offering a single Twinkie on eBay for $8,000. But some consumers are genuinely willing to foot the bill for scarce items. An experiment in 2012 by Lee and Seidel involved showing participants watch adverts. One set of the ads were normal, classic magazine ads, But in the other set, it had additional product descriptions, stating exclusive limited edition and hurry limited stocks. Subjects were then asked to indicate how much they would be willing to pay for the product. The average consumer was willing to pay an additional 50% if the watch was advertised as scarce. The problem with panic buying is the scarcity effect becomes self-fulfilling. A few extreme buyers start to bulk buy goods, Examples of these are shared wildly online, and more and more of us feel the resource is becoming scarce, so start to buy more as well. And then the resource actually becomes scarce. What's worse, 
as big brands start to limit purchases per customer, which actually raises the total amount people buy. It's too early to conclusively tell, but Tesco's decision to limit toilet roll per customer will probably encourage more people to purchase the limit when they'd usually only buy one or two rolls. But there's one more thing that drives the panic buying phenomenon, and it's the fear of missing out, also known as loss aversion. One evening, a social psychologist was sitting at his dining table, failing to convince his son to eat his vegetables. No matter what he said, the child was adamant he wouldn't put a single carrot in his mouth. Now, rather than stress or shout, the social psychologist put his profession to work. He wondered if a single phrase, which highlighted both scarcity and loss aversion, could have an effect. He said to the child, If you don't eat your vegetables, I'll give them to your sister, who enjoys finishing her vegetables more. Incredibly, the son promptly scoffed down his vegetables without another word being spoken. This one line, which has since been proven to work in follow-up studies, is so successful because it combines scarcity with loss aversion. Scarcity is triggered because the son presumes that the vegetables are now a scarce, valuable resource that his sister might want, and loss aversion kicks in because the threat of losing his vegetables becomes apparent. The classic study behind loss aversion revealed that losing $100 feels worse than gaining $100 feels good. This links to panic buying, because if we realise later that we might have needed toilet paper, and we didn't get it when we had the chance, we'll feel really bad. So we stockpile in order to avoid that feeling and instead gain a sense of mild satisfaction, similar to the child who's just eaten a plate full of veg and isn't really sure why. Stacks of hand sanitizer and pasta in your cupboard might not make you feel great, but it will save you that awful feeling of missing out. Loss aversion is therefore a vital nudge to know, especially when it comes to implementing public policy. Homanoff, a researcher at the New York City University, tested the theory of loss aversion by assessing whether a charge of five cents had a bigger impact on plastic bag reduction than offering a bonus of the same amount. Now, if we were all rational beings, both the five cent reward and penalty should have the same impact on our behaviour. But it didn't. Her results showed that plastic bag use declined by 42% after the five cent tax was implemented. But when the five cent bonus was offered, behaviour didn't change at all. Another, more positive implementation of the loss aversion effect can be found in the UK's approach to retirement plans. Consumers generally fail to shop around for the best retirement plan available. So the United Kingdom Financial Conduct Authority created an experiment aimed at increasing the amount of options people would consider before choosing their retirement plan. Information was provided alongside a pension quote which contained messages taking advantage of loss aversion. For example, it would say, 80% of people who fail to switch from their pension provider lose out by not doing so. This loss aversion messaging increased the shopping around by 8 and 27% among those contacted in the experiment, dramatically improving the rate most consumers got. But in general, loss aversion tends to lead to poorer decisions. People weigh potential costs and risk more heavily than the potential benefits and rewards. And when making investment decisions, people often focus on the risks associated with an investment rather than the potential gains. This can lead to hyper-focusing on an investment that has lost money while ignoring others. Noted in Daniel Kahneman's book Thinking Fast and Slow, investors who buy and sell shares rapidly due to loss aversion fears 
perform worse than less active investors. In 2008, Warren Buffett, one of the world's richest men, issued a challenge to the hedge fund industry. He bet that simply investing in one index fund, the S&P 500, would generate more income than buying and selling hedge funds over 10 years. The hedge funds were more than willing to take on his million dollar bet, certain that their acumen and expertise would beat this passive investment. But Buffett won, bringing more returns than the busy active investors. While a number of factors contribute, loss aversion ranks as one of the most important. Naturally, as humans, we place a bigger focus on the risk of an investment rather than the gains. And where shares start to drop, we immediately sell. But in the long term, this isn't successful. It links back to panic buying. We fear future risks greatly and naturally want to prepare for the worst case scenario, even if it means making a poor investment like paying 10 times more for hand sanitizer. If you find yourself feeling the urge to grab a few more packs of pasta or wrestle the bog roll off an elderly woman in the supermarket, perhaps take a moment to think. The principles of social proof, scarcity and loss aversion show that this urge is largely based off irrational thoughts. We see those on the other side of the world fighting over pasta and we feel a desire to stockpile ourselves. We see shops starting to limit what we can buy and suddenly we want to buy more. Or we overthink how events might play out, fearing the worst case scenario which alters our behaviour. This thinking self-perpetuates the problem, only worsening the scenario and making the issue more real. Perhaps with an awareness of the psychology behind panic buying, we can all take a different approach next time we fill up our shopping basket. But it's not just down to us consumers. Public bodies need to do more. It's no good just telling people to behave normally. Instead, they should probably remove the caps on buying essentials to limit the scarcity effect, emphasise that most people aren't stockpiling goods to utilise social proof, and to make it very clear that it's unlikely that there'll ever be a future scenario where we will literally run out of goods to lessen the impact of loss aversion. A desperately sad side effect of panic buying is that people in need are ultimately hit the hardest. Across the UK, food banks are struggling to keep up supplies of essentials, meaning many on low or no income are going hungry. But we can all do our bit to help. Rather than panic buying, pick up a few key items when you find them and drop them off at your local food bank. I've left a link to the Trussell Trust, a UK charity aimed at stopping UK hunger. Click that link in the show notes and you'll find a list of food banks near you to donate to. Anyway, that's it for me today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's been slightly different to normal shows, so do let me know if you have any feedback by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to tweet me at Nudge Podcast. And to make sure you don't miss the next episode, click the link in the show notes to sign up to our mailing list. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge. 